So what I need to do today then is sort of wrap up and tie up the summer series. Next week, Pastor Chuck's going to bring us a message over Labor Day weekend, and then we'll start our fall series uh, the following Sunday. But today, we wrap up the life of David, Israel's most next to greatest prolific and pronounced king. So I was speaking with someone this week, one of the uh, people on staff here, and they said to me, how are you going to do it? How do you wrap, wrap up the life of this enormous figure? And I uh, looked at him and said, well, you know, that's a really good question. How am I going to do that? And there's a lot of points along the way that we can certainly look at, really neat little incidences that sort of hint at what this person is. But I think today as we come to our text, what you'll see in the last chapter of uh, this sermon series, 1 Samuel 22, is that the Bible actually does it way better than what I could manufacture. So I'm not going to come up with some creative whatever, but instead I want to build towards 1 Samuel 22 that you heard Melissa read this morning. And what that is, is it's a poem, sort of a theophany, if you will. It's David's vision of God, and it's a theological summary of everything that basically has gone on in his life and how he interprets it. He's looking back over the course of time. He sees the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows, his successes, his failures, and he puts it all together and says, wow, through it all, through it all, you know, Lord God, my eyes were on you. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful, poetic, theological summary of everything that's happened in this figure's life. So I'd like to do that today and sort of walk through it. And um, it's going to be a little bit different because a lot of times what I do is I read the text and I give you three points and then I expound the text and I come back around with a poem at the finish, right? <laughs> that, that's a cute, tight sermon. But what I like to do also as well is follow the genre of the Bible. And this, this text doesn't do it like that. Instead, what you'll see here is a climactic sort of thing that ends in the poem. So I want to do it that way as well. So basically, I'm not even going to read the text until we get to the very end. But what I'm going to do is sort of weave this tapestry of all the other texts that we've looked at so far and pull out their theological significance and then intermingle and intertwine personal application and stuff like that all the way through it. So don't think of this as like a cut and paste cookie cutter format sermon. Instead, this is going to be more like a, a tapestry. So just to give you a heads up, it's a little different. But here's the theme for today. The theme is this. I think we have a slide. It says this. You can write it down or download it um, on your whatever you use. Um, it says the cosmic story. This is the, this is the summary of David's life is that the cosmic, this, it is the cosmic story of good versus evil couched in the miniature struggles of the human drama. I know that's a lot, but it's going to be unpacked. It is the cosmic story of good versus evil couched in the miniature struggles of the human drama. So if you think about it, like all the great stories, whether it's the Lord of the Rings, Frodo and Sam, or Star Wars, and Luke and Leah, or whatever you want to talk about, in these struggles, what you're really seeing is 
light versus darkness, good versus evil, who's going to win in the end? And it's all played out in terms of these little tiny people, whether they're hobbits or no-name people from the planet of whatever, but it's really not their struggle, but instead a much bigger cosmic struggle of good versus evil. Such is the case in the life of King David. You will see the exact same thing playing out with him, even down to the movement of the trees. So what I want to do is say that this story is not just one guy and what he did to succeed. That would be completely diminutive and dismissal and just so reductionistic to the Bible that it would almost make me sick. This is not leadership lessons from the life of David. This is not what you need to do to have a better life. But instead, this is God's eternal purpose for creation. This is the cosmic story of good versus evil couched in the miniature struggle of the human drama. Now, it's true, we're going to watch it play out through the life of King David and the rise and the fall of the Israelite monarchy. But again, it's not about the kingdom of David. Instead, it's about the kingdom of God. Exactly right. So, the text begins, or our story begins then, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, and God says to Samuel the prophet, This is what he says. He says, the Lord said to Samuel, I have provided for myself a king. This is not about the people. This is not about David. This is not about anything else. But this is about me conquering good or conquering evil with good. So what God does is he sets up this system of divine anointed deliverers, kings, who the Israelites would call messiahs. Now, the messiah's job is that of a savior. It is to come into town and kill the bad guys and deliver the good. So in the case of King Saul, he fails, but in the case of King David, he is successful. So for example, David comes in and he fights Philistine giants. He fights invading Moabites. He fights marauding Amalekites. He fights mutineers like his son. He fights all these people and shows that he is God's anointed deliverer. Well, if you take that and you only see that dot, you're focused in simply on the reign of King David. But if you pull out and look and say, what is God's overarching plan? You see that David is the one who prefigures Christ as the divine anointed deliverer and Messiah for God's people. So what David did in small part, Jesus does in large part. David fought physical giants, invaders, marauders, and mutineers. Jesus fights spiritual giants, invaders, marauders, and mutineers. They are not the Philistines, the Amalekites, and the Moabites, but instead they are Satan, his minions, and death itself. Jesus' job, just like David's then, is to soundly defeat the forces of evil once and for all. So then, when we start moving through these sermon series, what we see is that the fight between David and Goliath is really not David versus Goliath, but instead it is 
Yahweh versus Dagon. Exactly right. It's not David and Goliath. That's not the point. It's Yahweh versus Dagon and Goli- or da- versus Dagon. So then we move and we watch, and the first sermon starts with David beginning his ascension to messianic kingship. And the first thing that happens is Samuel comes and anoints him. And I don't know about you, but this was a big sermon for me. This one impacted me and is one I'll think about for a long time. And the way I walked through it was I said, okay, so Samuel anointed David. Cool, right? Like this is some weird Old Testament thing that some strange prophet walks up to some shepherd and pours oil on its head. Eh, big deal. But then we dug in a little bit deeper and we said, okay, so what did anointing mean for the people of that era and culture? And what we saw, particularly through the story of the Good Samaritan, is it has several highly significant theological and both personal applications. So, for example, if the Good Samaritan anoints the wounded person on the side of the road, what he's doing to that wounded person is he's saying, I accept you. I'm not going to reject you. I'm not going to walk by you. Instead, I'm not going to pass over you. Even though you're really messed up, I am going to bring you into relationship with me. And not only am I bringing you into relationship with me, but I want to cleanse your wounds. And not only do I want to cleanse your wounds, but I also want to provide a balm that will heal you and strengthen you and encourage you and be with you as you go forward from this point. I'm going to set you apart and say to the innkeeper, hey, I'll take care of him. Don't worry about it. And as a result of my work, you will be strengthened and ready to travel down the road. Well, take that same narrative then and ask, how does that apply to us? Am I anointed? Or is it just the injured traveler and the ancient king? What the New Testament, in fact, tells me is that the same themes that play out here play out in my life as well. And I am indeed not in a salvific way like Christ, but instead in a subsequent way anointed as well. 2 Corinthians 1 says, It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. He has put his seal on us and given his, us his spirit, which is like the oil in our hearts as a guarantee. So any time that I am feeling forsaken, any time that I am feeling injured, any time that I am feeling sad, any time that I am feeling lonely, any time that I am feeling discouraged, any time that I am feeling isolated, what do I need? I need anointing. I need someone to accept me. I need someone to cleanse me. I need someone to heal me. I need someone to soothe me. I need someone to rub in balm that's going to strengthen and protect me and pay my way so that I can go forward. Where do I get that? In the Messiah. I am his anointed. This is a beautiful picture and I hope you know, that you will walk in it and I will walk in it as well. It is what strengthens and encourages us every day of our life. When you are down and when you're discouraged, when you need help, you can always go back to God's anointing. So, as Samuel said to Saul, so I say to you, 
Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the Lord's anointed? Midland free, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the Lord's anointed? As a result of the anointing of the Holy Spirit, we, like David, should be confident in our anointing, passionate about God's glory, and running full speed ahead. Now, when you see that David do this in his life, now that, that was one sermon, now, now we're moving on to the second sermon, the significance of sovereignty. When you see David do that in his life, it causes him to take on challenges that he would have never otherwise done. Why? Well, remember, David is like this, but even though his enemies are like this, everybody, God is like this. Exactly right. So David's looking at this thing from an entirely different perspective, and that's what you see when someone truly believes in the anointing of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. They see God's meticulous sovereignty playing out into their life so that they can live in such a way as to be truly unstoppable. That's what you see playing out in Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and Gideon all along the way. They were successful because the Lord God was with them. So when you hear verses like this, for example, Joshua 1.9, be strong and courageous. Don't stop there. Everybody loves that verse and they want to put it on their bumper sticker and think that it makes them great magically and all of a sudden but the reality is the reason that Joshua can be strong and courageous is the same reason that David can fight Goliath that David can fight the Philistines and that David is a success is why because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go that's what makes you successful it's not because he was a brilliant political strategist a military champion or anything else it's because God was with him so you see this playing out in all of God's saints. For example, like Joseph, it says, the Lord was with Joseph and he became successful. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed. David, in similar fashion, had success in everything that he did. Why? For the Lord, his God, was with him. That is the significance of sovereignty, but let's be clear Success may be entirely different than how we define it. I just mentioned three characters, Joseph, David, and I'd add one more, Jesus. And we ask, what did success look like for them? Well, for Joseph, it was prison and famine. For David, it was battle and betrayal. For Jesus, success meant poverty, battles, betrayal, and death on a cross. He was successful in every way. So let us be clear then, New Testament modern believer who lives comfortably in North America, success is not that everything goes your way, but instead, success is whatever comes your way, you handle it well. Success is not that all goes well, but instead that you handle it well. So then how did David do that? Well, WW 
DD, what would David do? Well, take a look. 1 Samuel 18.11, Saul is trying to kill him. Saul hurls the spear at David and tries to pin him to the wall, not once, but twice. And David realizes, whoa, as surely as the Lord lives, there is but a step between death and me. He's on the very verge. He's on the edge. He's following after God, but he is about to die. So what does he do? First Samuel chapter 30 tells us, even though David was greatly distressed, this is what he did. He strengthened himself in the Lord his God. See, David realizes that God is at work in all the twists and turns, ups and downs, setbacks and step forwards of life. So rather than running to Endor, instead he runs to Abiathar. And his priest assures him of God's presence. As a result, David is strengthened and fed and nourished and fulfilled. And he realizes that when he is in trouble, he can run to his prophet, he can run to his priest, and he can run to his king. And so then I say to you, Midland Free, in a similar way, when you are distressed, when you are on the edge, when you are hurting and need fulfilled, you run to your prophet, priest, and king. So then after that, everything is okay, right? David trusted God. David beat the giant. David got away from the Philistines. Now his life is easy. And the kingdom is secure. Absolutely not. Again and again, the same issues crop up. Just like in our lives, so too in David's life. And it tells us that the Philistines came up yet again. Here is what happens, I think, is this. Let me see if I can illustrate it a little bit. Anybody on the front row want to come up on the stage this morning? Hmm? All right, come up, man. You're on. I missed something. What'd you do? I'm just excited. All right, good. I'm excited too. Good. Now, what's your name for everybody else? Adam. Adam, do you mind grabbing that? That's called a, I don't know, boom or pump mic. Yeah, microphone too. goes by that as well. All right, good. I'm going to do something here, and you are going to look at it, but you can't tell anybody else in this room what it is with the actual term. I'm going to draw something here, and I want you to describe what you see, and then we're going to see if they know exactly what it is you see. Okay. Without saying what it is. Exactly right. You're a smart guy. All right, here we go. I'm not much of an artist. My son is. This is the best I can do. Okay. Do a little bit like this, a little bit like this, like this. Okay. In no uncertain terms other than it's what it actually is. Please describe what you see here. Something in a one-dimensional field. Doing great. I, I, I think they got it. A square? Uh, that, yeah, I'm, that, not really, but. Uh. <laughs> um, so when you're in geometry class, they'll, they'll teach you like, hey, this is in one dimension, and then a line is two dimensions, and then a plane is three dimensions, right? Or something like that? No, it's, no wait. No, it's a zero-dimensional thing. 
Yeah, I don't know. Um, let's see. Yeah, I heard, I heard what it was some, somewhere over there. No, it's not an angle. Yeah. Yeah, point. Very good. All right, way to go. Yeah. All right. All right, do you guys want to see what it actually was? <laughs> I had no idea how that was going to go. Um, this is what it is. What do you guys see? A dot. That's all you see? What do you see? A portal? <laughs> what do you see? An eclipse. Okay, not bad. Good. What do you see, church? What color is this? What? Here's the thing. I drew this little, little tiny dot that takes up a very tiny space on this piece of paper. And the reality is when I ask you what you see, you say a dot. A little black spot. I'm like, what color is it? Black. What color is this? Well, there's some black there, right? But there's a whole lot of white. There's a bunch of other space surrounding this. And what happens is I think we get focused on our own lives in a very similar way. When something is happening, an individual incident, we are zoomed in and focused in on that little tiny dot. And that's all we see. We can't describe it to our friends. We don't understand it. We don't know anything else. Why? Because we missed the big picture. We're not understanding the cosmic reality that's playing out in the miniature dramas of our lives. We just see the little dot. And that's it. But there's all this other space around it. And that is why when we come into any incident in our life, we have to ask God very specifically, God, help us to see. God, cause me to see the cosmic story of good versus evil couched in the miniature struggle of my own life so that you will open my ears and open my eyes and cause me to hear your spirit whispering to me in the breeze. And when we do that, all of a sudden, we're like David, inquiring of the Lord. And the Lord answers to us in 2 Samuel 5. When you hear the sound of the marching in the tops of the trees, then rouse yourself, for you will know that the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the enemy. God, cause us to see, cause us to hear, cause us to experience the moving of your Holy Spirit that we would never sense otherwise. Give us the big picture view of the cosmic story of your eternal plan. That's what we want. So here is David. We're halfway through the sermon series now, and he is... Um, at the end of his fighting of the Philistines, he subdued them over and over and over again. 
And it says in 2 Samuel, so we started in 1 Samuel 16, now we're all the way up into 2 Samuel 15. It says, at the end of four years, Absalom, that's his son, sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. And what happened? The conspiracy grew strong. And the people with Absalom kept increasing. And what we saw was that even though you are following God, oftentimes the opposition grows strong. And God allows it. And it almost seems like God is blessing it. And you sort of scratch your head and go, what's going on? For four years, this has been going the wrong way. And yet we are assured for the Lord's anointed, no amount or size of momentary victory may overcome their final defeat, for the Lord's enemies will lose in the end. God will win. That's the short summary of David's entire career is that God wins every time. Even when it looks like David has lost, God wins. Why? Well, because the Lord has ordained. 2 Samuel 17, 14 plays these two counselors against each other, Hushai and Ahithophel. And the reality is the one is smarter than the other, but it didn't matter because God had ordained that it would go a certain way. Why? Because the Lord frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. And the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. God wins. For it is not by might nor by power, but instead by my spirit, says the Lord God of hosts. As a result, David and Absalom, they fight each other, father and son. David's refused to raise his hand against his son and asked all his generals to do so. So how are you going to kill this guy? No one's allowed to. That's rather weird. But once again, for some reason, we find that strange way in which God works coming through the trees. Again, God uses a tree. Second Samuel 18.8 says, the battle spread all over the face of the country and the forest of all things devoured more people than the sword, including Absalom. Even when all seems lost, no amount of size or victory may overcome Satan's final defeat. Transitioning now then to the New Testament, what you see is that God continues to use this pattern in our lives as well. When we, his anointed, face the forces of evil and all seems lost, for some reason, he decides again to use a tree. Using this tree, he cancels the debt that stood against us, nailing it to the cross. He disarms the rulers and authorities and puts them to open shame. He embarrasses his enemy by triumphing over them. Therefore, we, like David, must trust in God even in our darkest moments and say as Job, to God I would commit my cause, who has done great and unsearchable things. I don't understand how he wins battles with trees. But at the end of the day, he wins. 
every time, no matter what. And through it all, through this whole process of David's ups and downs, his highs and lows, his wins, his losses, his sins, his forgiveness, his son's rebellion, his fleeing, his coming back to the throne, eventually we come around to the spot in 2 Samuel 19 where it says this, the king arose... Ah, the king arose and took his seat. Is there any other kings who had to arise and are now said to be seated at the right hand of God the Father? And behold, the king was sitting in the gate. That's the place where he did his, his work and judged the people, and all the people came before him. Then you go a little bit further. He has done his work. He has conquered the enemy. He's been restored. He's experienced the isolation. And now some of the most beautiful words of the whole sequence, I think, occur in 2 Samuel 19.15. says this, The king came back. The return of the king. Hmm. Riding triumphantly into the city. God will win in the end, and I think this is the story of the life of King David. And so this text concludes with this beautiful, beautiful theophany. And what I think what it's asking you to do is really to see the white space. Not just focus in on a dot. If, if we focus in on the dot of David, we say, okay, there's David and Goliath. Kill the giant, great. If we focus in on the dot of David, we say there's David and Absalom, or we say there's David and you know, the Philistines. But what you really need to see in this text is that it is God selecting a king for himself and causing him to succeed. And as a result, no amount of victories or setbacks or whatever from the other side can ever be successful. Because God will win in the end. And so through this psalm, or through this last chapter of Samuel, you hear this beautiful theological summary. Some people call it a theophany or a vision of God. And it concludes with images or metaphors or pictures like this, like rock, fortress, savior, shield, power, place of safety, Refuge, earthquake, storm, thunder, lightning, dark winds, powerful clouds, and volcanic eruptions. This is how David describes his God marching out before him. And actually, if you look at the rest of the story, there's plenty of dots left. There's the rebellion of Sheba, there's the violated concubines, there's a ruptured Gibeonite treaty, and there's even more fighting with the Philistines. There's plenty of little incidents that David still has to clean up as a result of the mess of his predecessor. Yet, through it all, this is how he envisions and focuses in on God. 2 Samuel 22 says this, David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. 
This is the summary of David's life. He said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me. Look, they were too mighty for me. Right? David doesn't say that they were, that I was stronger, that I was victorious. He says, I was down here, they were up here, but God is like this. They confronted me in the day of my calamity. They kicked me while I was down. They stabbed me in my back. They waited until the worst point in my life when I was more tired than any other, and that's when they attacked. Isn't that the way the forces of darkness work? They're not going to wait for a fair fight. They're not going to engage you on a good day. They're going to wait till you're down, and then they're coming after you. David says, but, but the Lord was my support. Here's a very important principle that is true universally throughout all of Scripture. You save the humble, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. <laughs> Which one do you want to be, church? <laughs> you want to be saved or brought down? For you are my lamp, O Lord, even when it is dark and I cannot see, God lightens my darkness. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. Listen to this. He trains my hands for war. I thought this was just David. One of the biggest realizations I made out of this entire series is this is me. I've been praying all wrong. My whole life, I'm praying that things will go well, that God will fix it, that he'll deliver me from evil. What does that mean? Deliver me from evil is talking about the evil that's inside of me. <laughs> the evil that's on the outside, I'm going to have to fight. And how do I do that? By taking on the whole armor of God so that no weapon fashioned against me will stand. And I go after it full force, not afraid because of my place in Christ. God, train me for war. Because it's going to be a fight. I'm going to wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and powers and authorities and stuff in bad places. <laughs> but if I remember correctly, you triumphed over them, disarmed them, and put them to shame by nailing them to the cross. Hmm. Who is... God, but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God. He is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. You train my hands for war. You've given me the shield of your salvation. The Lord lives, blessed be the rock. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. This is what God does. Great salvation he brings to his king. And shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring, Jesus, forever. Look at David's life. 
What do you see? You see giants, Philistines, rebellions, or do you see the Lord God of hosts raising up a Messiah to deliver his people? Look at your life. What do you see? Do you see giants, Philistines, Absalons, and rebellions? Or do you see the Lord God of hosts marching out before you with Jesus, your captain, delivering his people? God, cause us to see. Cause us to see the significance of sovereignty so that when all seems lost, no amount of victory will ever ever, ever give Satan what he wants. Confident in our anointed, anointing, motivated by his glory, we run full speed ahead, trusting that the tree will save us and God will win in the end. Father, we thank you for your perfect victory and your only son, Jesus Christ. It's a strange way to win, Lord. I mean, I wouldn't expect betrayal, rebellion, and battles. I'd like to see an instant clear path all the way to the top. But you do this stuff that is beyond my comprehension and understanding. You do it with Joseph. You do it with Jesus. You do it with David. And Lord, even though I'm nothing like that, you even do that with me. And so I pray, God, for me, and I pray for all the people in our church that you would cause us to lift our eyes off that little tiny dot and lift them up to you. Lord, cause us to see, cause us to believe in your eternal victory in the end. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.